Welcome back to the EMS Nation podcast. I'm your host, Faison Arshad, and today we continue our EMS Week and COVID-19 series with none other than Dr. Mark Merlin, who's the creator of the MD1 program, which was launched in 2002, and it's the first comprehensive program to provide medical care outside of the hospital. He's double-boarded in emergency medicine and internal medicine, and of course, in EMS and disaster preparedness, and is the chair of the New Jersey State EMS Council, which is responsible for all EMS in the state. And he's also the vice chairman of RWJ Barnabas Health, Newark Beth Israel Medical Center, and is the EMS Fellowship Director for the MD1 program. I cannot speak more highly of Dr. Merlin, who's in fact a mentor to me, and it was a privilege to serve as the Deputy Fellowship Director back in 2014 and 2015. And this is an exceptional program focusing on physician pre-hospital response and medical direction. They have a whole host of programs, including tactical EMS, protocol development, active research, EMS medical direction, online medical control. And one of the hallmarks of this fellowship is that each fellow has their own emergency response vehicle. This fellowship really does it all in regards to their equipment and cash and kit, as it were. They're very highly equipped doing all sorts of things from transesophageal echo and cardiac arrest to having the capability of doing Reboa, as well as each physician response vehicle being designated by the Department of Health as being sanctioned to be a mobile blood blank. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast with Dr. Merlin, where we have a wide-ranging conversation talking about some of the preparatory steps related to COVID-19. We get into the concept of the role of the pre-hospital physician during the pandemic, and we've all heard of the concept of an ALS intercept. So we talk also about the physician intercept for you know severely dyspneic patients who require endotracheal intubation in the field. Um, we talk about the evidence base and the evolving information that we've got during this pandemic, because clearly um, the information that we've had readily available and the guidance that we've had from federal and regulatory authorities has changed dramatically throughout the course of this pandemic. And lastly, we talk about the future and where we go from here. Hope you guys enjoy. And as always, please leave us a review on whichever platform you're listening to this, whether it's Apple's, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. And that way we can help bring more and share this foam ed content with you and your colleagues. Hello and welcome to the EMS Nation podcast. It's a distinct uh, pleasure and privilege to have you on the show, Mark. How's everything going in New Jersey? Uh, we're great. We're working hard. We're trying to deal as best we can with this COVID crisis, but we're getting there. Um, we're definitely making a lot of headway and it looks like we're definitely past um, the crisis point. There's no doubt about that. And I know that um, the MD1 program is one of the most robust pre-hospital physician response programs in the country. I'm wondering if you can take us back to, you know, perhaps January, February, early March, when things were escalating in Asia, Europe, and then we started having cases in the uh, northwest of the U.S. and certainly in New York City. 
what was going through your mind at that time in regards to um, the crisis itself and what role you guys would play um, with the MD-1 EMS Physician Response Program? Sure. So as you said, MD-1 is a physician response program emergency department on wheels with EMS physicians. Uh, the doctors take the vehicles home, so they're available for response anywhere in the state, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, at no charge to any patient, hospital, or healthcare system. We do lots of surgical procedures. We carry low tide or whole blood, uh, everything from chest tubes to almost anything you can imagine. So before COVID really hit, we were kind of minding our own business, going on a lot of motor vehicle collisions with entrapments going on some uh, mass casualty incidents. And then we started to get a few uh, ideas from around the world that COVID was happening. And we said, how is our mission going to change if COVID really strikes New Jersey, as well as several other states that we provide support to? And nobody knew initially how this would hit the United States. We, we hope for the best, but we were all very, very concerned that this might uh, have a huge impact upon us. So the first thing we started to say is how well prepared were we? What was our personal protective equipment? We have PAPRs in all of our vehicles. And we said, if this is truly a, a novel coronavirus that's going to hit um, where we are, what uh, impact is, is it going to have for our program? And how, we can, how can we help first responders? You know, our goal is to support uh, police, fire, and EMS 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We anticipated that this was, uh, from initial reports we got, this was going to be a, a droplet uh, a virus, uh, where that was how it's going to be primarily transmitted. And knowing we had PAPRs, we thought perhaps we could assist people who were going to intubate but now had real concerns about transmission of virus during the intubation process, as well as other things like CPAP and, and aerosolized nebulizers. So we anticipated that we could actually be out there even more, only this time going on more routine advanced life support calls that ALS uh, take treats very well on a daily basis, but it would be impossible for ALS to have PAPRs on every ALS unit uh, and BLS unit throughout the world, right? It's expensive, there's a shortage of them, but we're lucky enough through donations to have them. Subsequently, we, um, we started going out there more to be on the road with uh, our first responders. And what we noticed was we weren't just treating patients, we were helping EMS understand this virus. Mm. You know, because we, we spent a lot of time in a paramedic EMTs class, um, you know, firefighter one, firefighter two class, teaching people about their normal job description. But we spend almost no time teaching them about treating novel uh, viruses. So we were portraying a lot of, we were giving a lot of information to our first responders, police, fire, and EMS on, on transmission, what the facts were, how they could give it from one person to another. And we stumbled across a lot of things before the media even got a hold of them that we were saying. We were concerned, you know, e even going into multiple emergency departments. You know, we have 72 acute care hospitals in our state, and we saw some hospitals that um, were doing a great job with preparations, and some hospitals that were having some challenges because of a lack of PPE. 
it's nobody's fault, but we just, it, it, we weren't anticipating this. So initially we were going out there and just spreading the uh, PPE around as much as we could. Some people perhaps had a lot of surgical masks, some people perhaps had a lot of N95 masks, some people had a lot of gowns. So we were looking for holes and moving the mm -hmm. holes uh, around the state to assure first responders had adequate uh, equipment. And we found a lot of people just didn't know basic stuff about viral transmission. And we were just trying to give them information early on before the CDC was commenting too much, before we were talking about testing people. There was a lot of information, and unfortunately, as you know, a lot of misinformation that was going around about viral transmission. Again, you know, you don't spend a lot of time in paramedic school or EMT school learning about virology and how things are transmitted from one to another. And if you, if you, we interacted with a lot of people on the first line who said, you know, I haven't really put on PPE on a regular basis since uh, HIV AIDS day, right? They, they all said, well, we do it every now and then but it's not like we're doing it on a regular basis. And we only have a few days left of PPE before it's gone. We, through the use of media, started getting a lot of donations for PPE that we were spreading throughout the first responder community. And we started making stuff up as we go because there was mm -hmm. no, you know, there was no playbook for this. So we started giving advice to first responders about what to do. And, and in your example, January, February, March, we were giving uh, we were giving advice to people um, before the numbers started increasing dramatically in preparation that they would get worse. And it was very interesting because in some parts of our state, um, we saw very, very little COVID. And in some places, we were inundated with mm. the number of calls all the time. Then we had the luxury of going into all these different emergency departments and seeing how everybody was um, dealing with it. And we saw emergency departments that were intubating 15, 20 people a day easily. And we were all doing this as best we could at the time, but we were all kind of confused in the beginning. You know, we look back upon some of these patients now and we present these cases to each other where a patient presents with a pulse ox of like 50 and respiratory distress. And in the old days, we all used to intubate and RSI these patients. Mm -hmm. And we all stood around going, gosh, you know, then COVID hit and we started doing the same thing only for us to turn around and say, you know what, we weren't quite doing the right thing. We were using lots of PEEP, so we were using lots of pressure and lots of tidal volume, and we were intubating people really quickly. And then one day, like I started getting these text messages from people to say, I, I have a patient here whose pulse ox is 50, they're in some respiratory distress, not that bad, they don't look like they need to be intubated. And my first response was, something's wrong with your machine. You know, yeah. it, it can't be right. Um, and then we started seeing this more and more and more people who were hypoxic. And, you know, it, it was just fascinating. The first couple of cases, we were all so confused. And then, you know, like many things in medicine, we started to treat it better. We started to get smarter. We started to realize how, uh, what the issues were. And our issues, I think, can be summarized by saying our need for ventilators was based upon one simple fact. You know, and I live in a world where we have transport ventilators mm -hmm. on many of our ALS units. Now, some of these got pulled to be in the hospital, right, from the ALS units, which was uh, interesting. But, you know, as you know, if, I, if we put somebody who's in, in, in a bad heart failure on a ventilator, we could probably get them off in, you know, one to three days or so. And now all of a sudden, we had a group of patients who we were having all this trouble getting off ventilators. 
And then I would go in emergency departments and some doctors were just sitting around going, our volume is so low, except mm -hmm. we have a few critical patients that come in. And as a result, the ICUs were filling up, the telemetry beds were filling up. And so where was the overflow going? To the emergency departments. So that left our EMS units oftentimes waiting longer when they would get to hospitals to turn over patients, right? This was absolutely the wrong thing. So we started saying, we should be turning over patients outside of the hospital because we don't want to expose our first responders. And we were saying this way before the hospitals were saying it. Hmm. Turn over patients outside of the hospital in a tent somewhere. And, you know, then I started thinking, why haven't we been doing this all along, right? Why isn't the key question for EMS when we show up at emergency departments, it, does this patient have an infectious problem? No matter what the infection is. And if you have an infectious problem, you go left. And if you have a non-infectious problem, you go right. Because where all these viruses transmit to, from one person to another in closed settings, such as an emergency department. We told first responders, we want you to do all this stuff with PPE. But then they start asking, well, why haven't we been doing this all along? And that's a really good question. Why haven't we been dealing with infections similar with PPE all along? And this probably just put it into the forefront for us to say, perhaps there are opportunities here for improvement and utilizing PPE with a whole host of patients we never thought before. And this is not just not really ALS at all. This is a lot of BLS, right? Absolutely. Because that patient with minimal respiratory distress, you know, that patient who doesn't look bad may not have an ALS unit available. They may not need to have an ALS unit there. So this is a lot of basic life support. And then, you know, you would see people who did have PAPRs come into ERs with PAPRs, and you would have some people come in with no PPE. But we spent a lot of time on the front lines because our workers just didn't have time to read the CDC guidelines. They didn't have time to watch the news, right? So the only word they were getting was from us, from going from one fire station to the next to the next, from, you know, an EMS unit who was going on jobs, and we would sit there and talk to them about what role they can play in terms of protecting themselves. And then, you know, then came all the questions about, should I get tested? When should I get tested? And all the confusion uh, that still surrounds uh, people right now with uh, testing. They were probably still not gonna figure out for months to come about the proper role of, of testing for first responders. So that was a, a beautiful illustration of PPE. And I'd like to kind of dig into the philosophy Certainly as an EMS medical director, one of my frustrations in the pre-COVID um, era has been espousing the appropriate use of PPE. So we might have a known influenza positive patient that also has COPD and has called 911 for respiratory distress. So, you know, our protocol would be to initiate a nebulizer, maybe to give it a little bit of IV steroid, a 12 lead EKG. But it was so difficult for me to get my crews to even wear a, a respiratory mask. And the same goes for the nursing home environment. Um, we have patients who are known contact precautions, MRSA, VRE, but getting EMS providers, irrespective of a supply issue, to wear a single-use disposable gown was a Herculean task. What have you done uh, in regards to the philosophy of teaching the need and appropriate use of PPE, and how can we keep this going in a post-COVID era? Yeah, it, you know, it's been challenging because we've kept changing the message on EMS. First, it was don't wear masks. Then it was wear masks. 
Then I started telling people to wear N95, and then they had to change it between every patient. Then we were running out of N95s, so they could wear it for several hours. Then they could wear it all day. Then I was telling people to put a surgical mask over their N95, and then they would change that between patients. But some people had a lot of surgical masks, but some people had no surgical masks. And then we told them when they weren't near a patient not to wear a, a surgical mask. And then they would tell them to wear a surgical mask all the time. And then we changed it based upon <laughs> six feet. And then people started saying, well, there are studies out there where you can actually transmit the virus greater than six feet. And we kept changing the message. We're very used, to, in medicine, we're very used to changing the message constantly because the literature changes all the time. I'm not sure we're so used to that in EMS. We write protocols, protocols exist for a while, and then we update the protocols. We change our practices based upon, if we're doing things well, the, la the last few studies that are done well that come out. But we do need to, to, we do need to keep this message up. And it's not just first responders who don't like the masks. I'll admit it, I hate wearing a mask. You know, I'm the kind of person that likes to shake hands or hug and do all that stuff. And yet, you know, if I'm, by the end of my shift, if I'm wearing an N95 mask most of the shift because I'm interacting with a lot of patients, you know, my CO2 is going really far up, you know. Mm. Uh, and, and even a surgical mask, it's just not comfortable. It's not how I've done things for for, for years and years and even changing gowns, you know, we go into a, a shift in the hospital and we charge, right? And we start seeing all these patients very quickly doing all these things to them. And now we have to slow down that process because we're changing PPE between patients. It becomes rather challenging. But we need to change the way we've thought about uh, how EMS interacts with the patient. We were the first people to say, at least in the area, to say no more nebulizers. Let's try and get uh, myodose inhalers. Mm -hmm. But you know that's a, that's an expense we hadn't thought about initially. Um, you know we give all this advice about how to have a closed CPAP uh, circuit, but you know that's very challenging for somebody to learn and implement overnight by watching videos. You know that's a hands-on. You know closing your CPAP circuit to me is a hands-on thing to do. You mm -hmm. know watching a video. It is not perfect, right? But yet we want to bring people in for education to, to teach them how to do these things. So we need to be wearing more gowns, more masks. It's just the way EMS is. And then if you ask people, well, when you had that patient who was coughing and sneezing with 104, why weren't you wearing a mask all these years? And they look at you and they go, I, I don't know, I should have been. And I go, listen, I'm to blame too. As an EMT and a paramedic, you know, I wasn't wearing, you know, I, I started practicing in the day where nobody wore gloves for starting IVs. Like the people looked at you like you were crazy if you were wearing gloves. And then people look at you now like you're crazy if you don't wear gloves. Mm -hmm. Things just change. We just get smarter and we realize that we have to protect ourselves. And I think, you know, the sad part about this is one reason we're going to change is because we've lost so many people on the front lines um, who got sick. Um, some of whom had medical issues and some of whom were just uh, uh, um, healthy and got sick. And they got sick early on. They got exposure early on before we were really telling people about wearing good PPE. That's a, definitely another point that I wanted to bring up. And um, in regard to providers getting ill and maintaining the workforce, I know several um, or at least a couple of MD1 physician programs, thankfully, are, are doing great now, but also contracted COVID. 
Are you able to share a little bit about their experiences as well? Sure. So we had two doctors who tested positive for COVID. One is our doctor, Matt Harris. He did several, um, we did a video with him on YouTube uh, right after he got sick and he was hospitalized. So he was trying as a physician, you know, we do the worst thing, we take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So he was trying to help himself at home. And he just got to the point where he was too tachypnic and too hypoxic to be at home by himself. So he went into he went into the hospital. He was hospitalized for several days, and he had persistent hypoxia for several days. And he had this phenomenon that we know now, where he got better and then got worse again, um, which he was not expecting because he got sick early on. He was one of the first physicians in his whole region um, in uh, in Colorado to actually get sick. And then we had another one of our MD one physicians, um, Nabin Ariaprakai, who who got sick as well. And you know we did a, a, a video on him as well, and he was sleeping several hours, and, uh, and he had some hypoxia as well. You know, he wasn't, uh, he, he wasn't expecting um, to get sick. He was expecting that, you know, with proper PPE, with wearing N95 masks, with social distancing, um, that he would be, stay healthy. Um, but again, the problem is initially, when the first few cases, we weren't wearing PPE because we just didn't know. We were, you know, so we, we were not as robust in, in wearing it uh, around the hospital and interacting with patients. And you know that when we first started seeing patients with COVID, we weren't testing people who, um, who we were sending home, mm -hmm. right? And what was phenomenal is we were sending people home much sicker than ever before, right? We were seeing them usually in tents outside the hospital. They were hypoxic, they were coughing, but if they looked okay, right, and they could tolerate their hypoxia well, of course, it depends upon the degree of hypoxia, then we were sending them home and telling them to, you know, quarantine or go into isolation, depending upon if they had symptoms or not. And then what was, you know, what was phenomenal to me is when, personally, when I started seeing people who were coming into the ERs for completely different reasons, like mm. lower abdominal pain, mm -hmm. like, you know, routine stuff, and we would stumble across multi-lobar pneumonia. And then, you know, and then we have the confusion of saying, does COVID present with abdominal pain? And the answer, the, the answer in, uh, as of today is who the heck knows? Did these people um, who come in who, who are patients actually get COVID um, and they're presented with abdominal pain? Or are they asymptomatic carriers and their abdominal pain has nothing to do with, you know, COVID? And the answer is, it's impossible to tell, right? So how many truly asymptomatic uh, patients are there? Well, you know, listen, we have a few studies now. I think we have about six or seven studies in the literature. And uh, we know there's a fair amount of people who are asymptomatic with, with COVID. But it is scary, I'll tell you. The first time I saw somebody with multilobar pneumonia who had no respiratory symptoms, no fever, no cough, and I stumbled across it, and you're just going, how could you not be symptomatic? Your x-ray looks terrible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then we were doing, which I'm sure you would like, is we were ultrasounding people's lungs. Of course. And, and the ultrasound made no sense. We kept say, saying, what's wrong with our machine? <laughs> this is like all these infiltrates, you know, what's wrong with our machine? This can't be right. Because we just like to ultrasound just because we're there pre-hospitally. And uh, it didn't make any sense to us. Um, but the good news in all this is we're getting smarter about how to treat this. We're, we're following the phenomena now of don't just do something, stand there, right? Because the more studies we have, 
the more we're learning is sometimes just standing there is, you know, is okay. And then, you know, what's fascinating is I was getting all these calls from EMS medical directors to say, I just had an EMS unit transport somebody in a prone position who was short of breath. This is blasphemy. You know, <laughs> I, I criticize them. What, what should I do about this? And I go, well, I'll tell you, a few months ago, I would agree with you. And now I'm not so sure. Fundamentally, we've all learned that we shouldn't be transporting patients prone, especially ones who are having respiratory symptoms. But man, as you know, you take these patients who, who have COVID and, and, um, and, and respiratory findings, and you go ahead and you prone them, they do great, like it's shocking. And then you do some high flow nasal cannula, and you've got a different patient, right? Absolutely. Um, but then again, we had to send a message to EMS, like, think differently about this virus. I think the rate of change uh, in regards to the evidence base has been uh, very challenging, both in the hospital. And, but as you said, in the EMS environment, we develop protocols and don't change and update them that quickly. Towards the end of it, what were kind of some of the ideas that you were recommending to your EMS units, whether it be high flow? And by high flow, you mean a regular nasal cannula turned up to 15 to 20 liters? and positioning and things along yeah. those lines. The silent hypoxia has been fascinating because I was intubating in the early days, people who were texting on their phones with O2 stats of 60%. And you know we were learning in the hospital as well and we weren't able to nebulize or use BiPAP and the closed CPAP circuits hadn't really, had, we hadn't gotten up to snuff on those. So we're intubating those right. patients who are well appearing. So kind of now as it, as it stands, how are you advising your units to address these types of patients. Yeah. And, and on that point, this is, why the, this is why the data is so confusing because co while COVID has remained the same, we've learned that no two COVID patients are exactly the same, right? And that you have to do different ventilator settings for different patients. And the way we treated early on is different. This is why the mortality da uh, data is difficult to clean out. This is why so much of this information you know, this is why surveillance for testing is so challenging because we were sending all these people home initially. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's very challenging to make up um, numbers. Plus, you know, all the people who had some symptoms who never came to the hospital because they were so afraid, right? Our data is just so confusing. It, it, and it's, you know, it, it, it's very challenging to, um, everybody wants to know what's the mortality rate? How is it compared to the flu? And I say, you know, I'll give you numbers, but it's also silly what you're asking me because we don't really know the true mortality rate of the flu either because mm -hmm. most of my people, most of people I know, if they have some flu symptoms, they don't go to the hospital, right? And maybe they go to an urgent care center and that doesn't get counted in terms of statewide data because we don't test a lot of people, right? So it's just very, very, um, it, it's very, very challenging. As far as, um, you know, what we're telling people now. So initially, a lot of paramedic units were saying that if the MD1 unit was around, let them intubate because we could intubate with a PAPR. And boy, I never practiced intubating with a PAPR on, right? You talk about a, a strange experience, you know, it's a whole new training process. Absolutely. But because, you know, PAPRs are in short supply, because they're not, uh, because they're expensive, um, we, you know, we couldn't provide them to, to, to EMS in general. Probably something to rethink in the future if we ever um, have another terrible outbreak or something. 
Um, so we were getting, we were trying to get to more and more respiratory calls to intubate people with Pampers on. Um, in general, we were giving it, you know, we were giving all this advice uh, to people about doing everything they can not to aerosolize uh, the virus. In terms of what you said about high flu nasal cannula, boy, you know, you hit the nail on the head. This is the problem. When somebody says high flu nasal cannula, I go, what do you mean by high flu nasal cannula, right? How many liters per minute are you really talking about? Is this a high flu nasal cannula in the literature or is this a high flu nasal cannula that I'm used to in EMS? You know, or is this a high flu nasal cannula that people do with humidified oxygen that go up to 60 liters per minute, which they've been doing for decades, right? Not, 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 new, um, not new whatsoever. I'm finding that, you know, prony people is, is amazing. Ifluenasal cannula is amazing. I know initially we were worried about some uh, transmission of the virus with hyphlonasal cannula, and then there was some evidence that that's, that's not true. So I, I'm a big fan of hyphlonasal cannula in general. I've switched you know, neb nebulizations to meter dose inhalers when they're available and if, if we can do it, which is not always the case. If you can do a closed circuit CPAP, which is, um, then that's great. The more lung ultrasounds, you know, is great when, uh, when available. And think twice before you intubate that patient. You know, that's what, that's what I usually say. All the parameters that you've learned of when to intubate patients, just think about it. You know, it, it may not be necessary. And, you know, still today, no matter how many times I do it, when I turn that patient over to Pronem, because we forget how posterior the lungs are, right? Once you do that and you see their oxygen better and they're face down and they, you know, and they tell you my oxygen saturation and the, your, your oxygen saturation is getting better. And then you do some nasal cannula. Mm -hmm. And listen, you know, I usually start at two liters. I start low and then I go higher and higher and higher because I see what their needs are. Because the day of everybody's oxygen needing to be, you know, in the 90s, is gone. It's more Absolutely. like pediatrics, right? Where the mm -hmm. sats, where low, we, we tolerated lower sats. Now we're tolerating lower sets uh, in people too. I think about how we've changed stuff in the hospital too, about protocols of steroids and protocols with HCQ and all these things like are changing on a, on a daily basis. And whosoever video you watch or whosoever paper you watch um, read um, changes on a daily basis. And as you know, every week, there's so many studies coming out now about COVID-19. We are getting really smart about this and thank goodness, we have flattened the curve. We're on a downtrend. Whether COVID will come back, you know, I say that I know the answer. It's that there is no answer. Nobody knows for sure. There is no expert in this out there. It, it could come back. It could not come back. I personally believe that humidity, because of that one, one study in China, um, decreases the amount of COVID transmission, right? So humidity seems to be like a good answer. Although no study has been perfect because people are rushing to publish, which is okay in this environment. Um, and sure enough, like previous coronaviruses, our numbers decreased as humidity and temperature went up. Is that causation? Who knows, right? We, we, we have no experts in this, but we have good news in that the numbers are going down. Now what we need to do, which is really, really important, is get everybody else with all their other medical complaints back to calling 911. Because if those people aren't calling 911 and coming to emergency departments, that's the biggest injustice in, in, in all this stuff. The fact that we've lost a certain percentage of strokes and STEMIs, heart attack patients. You know, we need to get those people back. We need to get people who are staging cancers back to CAT scan machines. Yeah. That's the really important thing. You know, you need to start calling 911 just like you would have before COVID. I think that's uh, 
a very important message. The last podcast we did is where have all the STEMIs gone? And we were actually discussing the cardiac arrest incidents within New York City itself, which increased dramatically um, during the pandemic. And the routine uh, presentation of ST elevation MI significantly decreased all across the country, along with dropping volumes in the emergency department related to fear on presentation catching COVID. So that's definitely an incredible point uh, to bring up. Now, I know you've been a very rational voice during the COVID pandemic, and you, uh, in general, are always very up to date with the literature. Um, Do you have any guidance for us on the latest literature? I know Gilead just published their remdesivir full data trial in the New England Journal and things along those lines. Where do we go from here? (laughs) Well, remdesivir, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic, right? Um, I thought the first study from Desivir was okay. It didn't quite reach its statistical significance for uh, most parameters. It did show a mean, uh, a median increase in uh, uh, days of improvement in like five days from like, uh, you know, roughly 14 to 11. Yeah. Several endpoints didn't, uh, weren't very um, robust. So it was okay. I wouldn't have called it, you know, uh, an amazing finding. I would have said I'm cautiously optimistic. And there is more stuff to come out. And I know there's more stuff being published on it. So, you know, um, that is good. I do probably think that like much of uh, this is timing, just like the French data with HCQ, if you give mm-hmm. it earlier, perhaps that's better. It's, it's, the literature is a little confusing. And until we have bigger numbers in more robust research, a lot of this stuff is still absolute, uh, absolute guesses. Uh, you know, my gut feeling is COVID's going to continue on the downtrend. My gut feeling is, although we're pushing testing, uh, initial, we're not going to get to the kind of testing, in my opinion, that people are uh, want, right? Um, because people are going to start saying, well, you know, uh, should I get a nasal swab every single day? You know, because it's a binary test. And eventually people are going to say, well, what do I do with these results? You know, it's very interesting. You know, if we did this the way we do everything in medicine, as you know, which is come up with a good tighter test and then go backwards and get, um, you know, a a point of care testing, it would have all been fine. Mm. But we, FDA issued emergency use authorizations, which was okay because we were were in a rush. As a result, 175 manufacturers went to market to try and get their test out there. And, you know, the bottom line is if you have IgG, I don't know, as of today, that that confers immunity. Everybody's saying this, and it's totally true. I, I like to think that it confers some type of immunity. What that type is, I have no idea. As you know, if we do a titer for like measles, I can get like a number, and then I know if you're above the number, you have immunity, or whether or not, not I need to give you a booster. We don't know that yet. When will we know that? Everybody will give a different idea on TV. But until we have the test, you know, we just don't know. We could test first responders and and the general public on a daily basis, but I'm not sure that's right either. We have many studies now which are calling uh, calling the accuracy of these tests questionable. But the problem is we're comparing apples with oranges, you know, when we do most of this. Somebody has a a test and they say it's a 98% accuracy. And the next study says it's 40% accurate. The problem is, that you, know, you have to time the test properly. 
And you know, one study showed that if you time a nasal, a nasal swab to day three after symptoms start, that's the most accurate. So if you do it day one or day two, it's going to be much less accurate. If, you know, so there's so many variables here. You just can't compare. Um, and what the general public does is they just give up on the literature. They go, I'm getting all this information. I don't know what the truth is. Everybody must be wrong. But I think we need to clarify some of these statements. I think the quick line of saying, oh, this test is 73% accurate. Where, under what circumstance, you know, we have to be, we have to be more specific. Testing frontline people is challenging because we do need a rapid test to get people back to work. I think of that firehouse, that paid firehouse, where somebody who's COVID positive with no symptoms interacts with a shift coming on and a shift going off. Do you quarantine three platoons, you know, in a firehouse? How scary is that, you know? And then you take a town out of service. Uh, you know, that's pretty scary for, you know, uh, for a virus where we probably have a lot more people who have antibodies than we know of. There's a lot of us who have antibodies. Some people just, as you know, some healthy people just don't make antibody responses. Mm -hmm. Perfect example is hepatitis B, right? Mm -hmm. Some people just don't make antibodies to it, right? And the CDC guidelines have accepted this, right? So this could be very similar, that we're not all making antibodies to this. It's, this is all a little confusing to us, right? The only good news here is for the average patient, they're going to recover fully from COVID-19, right? And even the people who don't do well, I would argue that they have a much better chance in doing well now, now that we're smarter about treating the disease. So when somebody says, what's the mortality of COVID and they give you these numbers of what percent winds up in the ICU, what percent winds up on a ventilator, that's all comers from the beginning of when we treat the disease. Let's just talk about the last few weeks where the ICUs are emptying out, where yeah. the telemetry beds for COVID are, are emptying out, where the hospitals are getting back to normal, where most of the ER volumes are, have dropped so dramatically that we unfortunately have to furlough or lay off uh, workers in emergency departments because the volume has dropped so dramatically. It's, it's not to say that we don't see some COVID, we, we, we do, and, but we, and we probably will through the summer as well. We'll see a few cases, but we need to take into consideration the most recent time period, not just from the beginning when we were all such novices about treating this virus. A beautiful words of caution and a very rational thought process there. One thing I definitely wanted to get in there was um, New Jersey's nursing homes were particularly hard hit. I'm wondering if you could kind of hypothesize about that and the time frame, as you were saying, that was, you know, early on the spread was kind of rampant before appropriate precautions went in. And kind of, you know, now for EMS units going into nursing homes, um, are there any particular recommendations that you would say, irrespective of the chief complaint? In the beginning, I was getting a lot of calls from different EMS units to say, I'm showing up at this nursing home, they want to check my temperature. Uh, that Can they do this? And, you know, my response was usually, I don't know if they can do it or not, but what's wrong with it, right? What's wrong with checking your temperature? They're just, people are just trying to do the right thing. The problem is when the data first started coming out, we thought that 85% of people have a fever with COVID-19. And then we learned it's probably around day three that 85% get a fever. But uh, early on, it's probably more like in the 40s, like 40 percentile, 40% of people get a fever. So when you get people early on, they may very well not have a fever. And then they have a cough, 
sometimes your nose is running, but boy, we're in allergy season now, right? And people, you know, people still get routine colds, right? So now it becomes uh, really challenging. But I can say if you're going into a nursing home because of your specific example that you cited, what's wrong with screening people for infections all the time, having nothing to do with COVID? Because who got sick in those nursing homes and what states were hit hardest? States with densities where people tend to live in closed spaces. You know, if, you, if, if we would have been put together and asked who's going to be hit hardest, I bet we would have picked areas of New York, right? We would have picked areas of New Jersey. We would have picked counties where people live in close proximity together, just all guessing, right? So in New Jersey, Essex County, Bergen County, you know, counties close to New York City. New York City, which has, you know, lots of high-rise buildings where people live close to, to one another, because even with good social distancing, it's difficult to be perfect, right? It's difficult to be perfect. So it's very easy for viruses to be transmitted from one person to another. You know, uh, college dorms, this is where we see all these infections for years and nursing homes. So now the question for me is, we probably have learned to be more vigilant with nursing home people, right? A generally uh, an older population, right? Who has more medical diseases, who's more susceptible to any virus. We should screen everybody who goes into a nursing home you know, on a regular basis. Mm. Again, having nothing to do with COVID because there are still other viruses that kill people. Um, so EMS is some, a group of people who can transmit viruses, right? Because they're in the general population and they go into nursing homes on a regular basis. EMS should be the first people when they get sick that they should not go to work. The first group of people because they, they, you know, they, run, you know, they run the risk. And we all know that if you do a nasal swab on somebody, when you first get sick, it's probably gonna be very inaccurate, right? You really need, probably day three is probably the most accurate, but there's several papers out there which uh, give confusing data, but it's not gonna be day one. So it's really up to the individual provider to say, boy, I'm coughing, sneezing. And I would say that we've used fever as something magical in medicine. And I would say fever is just one component of illness. If you, for some reason, people still think that if you have no fever, but you're coughing and sneezing, that's okay. That's <laughs> not okay, right? Some people just don't have a fever. So if you're coughing and sneezing, you can transmit a virus. If you're doing it excessively, you should not be around patients who are most susceptible to this virus. So I would say we need to do better screening in any facility, LTAX, you know, nursing homes, any facility, college dorms, where you have a lot of people close together, but particularly focus our efforts on senior citizens. That's mm -hmm. where the effort should be focused. And the opposite argument, as you know, is this concept called herd immunity. Letting the masses interact with each other, letting the kids go to beaches, letting you know, immunity build up in society so we can develop these so-called neutralizing antibodies, right? And this is how we practiced for years. You know, We didn't always know we were doing this, but this is how we practice for years. So perhaps the efforts should be focused on the nursing homes or, you know, environments where people are living together or anywhere somebody's immunocompromised, right? Um, again, we were learning a lot about immunocompromised people. We're learning about people, a lot of people with like multiple sclerosis and other diseases uh, with, with uh, leukemias, lymphomas. And some of these uh, diseases have lower rates of, of COVID infections. It's a whole other topic. And that's, that's very, very interesting why, why that is. 
but um, we need to be uh, we need to be really really vigilant about some groups of people. And I think it's totally okay to screen EMS. But whenever somebody says we're screening with thermal scans for fever, I say good, you've gotten to 50% of it. Mm -hmm. Who's asking the question about coughing, colds? And yet people say, well, somebody can lie to me. Well, that's true. But if you ask the question repeatedly, it makes everybody think, you know, am I sick? Am I sick? Am I sick? Listen, if you're in the middle of your shift and you start to sneeze a couple of times, there's nothing wrong with putting a mask on, right? And you go, it's probably my allergies, but nonetheless, you know, because we're in an environment in EMS or in the hospital where we're around the sickest group of people, the people who are completely immunocompromised. And the problem is, it's very easy if somebody has cancer on chemotherapy to know they're immunocompromised. We have a whole bunch of people who are undiagnosed, right? Mm -hmm. So we're around them, and all of a sudden, we, they come back, you know, and blast crisis or something, and then we all start putting masks on. But, you know, that, those are missed opportunities, right? So if you're, that's the patient who's really going to get in trouble. So if you're not feeling well, you shouldn't be in this environment. And this is the same message we need to send to, to EMS on the front line. If you're not feeling well, you have to go home because urinitis is your source of, of infection for, for everybody else. Going into nursing homes should be considered to be like super, super high risk every time we go in. And, you know, listen, if somebody wants to make a policy after COVID is way over that everybody should be in full PPE to go into a nursing home, you know, I'm a hugger, I'm a, I'm a handshaker. I don't think that's the worst advice. You know, it's, it's, it may be a bit overkill, uh, but nonetheless, it, 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 it's, it may be reasonable as well. Very insightful, Mark. And we're kind of approaching the end of our time. So I wanted to sneak in one more medical question and then uh, give you an opportunity to tell folks more about the MD1 program and where they can get involved and learn more about the program itself. But how did you guys approach cardiac arrest um, during COVID? And then what was the role of the, um, of the MD1 physicians, if any, during uh, cardiac arrest protocols too? So we have... Like many states, New Jersey is a big state. It takes us a long time to get from one end to another. We get cages for high acuity calls uh, all over the state. And obviously cardiac arrests are one type of high acuity call where we tend to work them on scene, at least for a little while. So we can get to some of these people. Besides PAPRs and trying to intubate with PAPRs, we are seeing more cardiac arrests, just like you suggested. The sad thing is we're seeing more suicides too, dramatically. Mm a number of gunshot wounds, stab wounds, self-inflicted things is going up um, dramatically. And my big fear, as I'm sure is for you too, is these numbers are going to be much higher um, once we get back to uh, a world with, less, with significantly less COVID. We're going to be going into people's homes who should have been calling ambulances and find them much, much, much sicker. Mm -hmm. We, um, you know, our plan is that we want... EMS to do what EMS does best. We want them to go back to all the normal things that they were doing before. We believe that people need high flow nasal cannula. We believe that there are still many asthmatics who need nebulizer treatments because we don't have meter dose inhalers. We believe that there are open CPAP circuits that are just waiting to help people, right? The question for us, which isn't addressed that much, is how do we go back to this world? right? It'd be very easy to say, oh, just forget it, put a meter dose inhaler in every ambulance. Well, that's not possible, right? 
there has to be some compromise. Some of the advice we were giving in the beginning is if you're doing an, a meter dose inhaler, you know, or if you're doing a nebulizer treatment, do it outside as opposed to in the patient's house. One EMS person, uh, personnel does it as opposed to several people being around the patient. You stand at the patient's side as opposed to in, in front of them. Those are the people I worry about, the people who have other medical problems that, weren't, that we weren't able to all treat because we were all so worried about COVID. Appropriately so, but I still, you know, there's still people who have acutely compensated heart failure in the world. There's still people who have stas asthmaticus. There's still people having allergic reactions, right? We're seeing less of them. And again, that's a whole discussion why that may be, but we have to get back to treating them because I'm afraid that there are people who are having TIAs at home and haven't been calling EMS and their symptoms resolve and their attitude is, I'll go to the doctor once my doctor's office opens back up. That is That scares me a lot, right? Those are the people that we really need to go ahead and um, we need to keep sending messages out there. We need to do public service announcements to them. It's time to start calling EMS again, you know? I hope they would have been doing it the whole time, but we need to push them back. It's just like, you know, our stroke data. Our stroke data keeps telling us that people aren't calling enough or they're waiting hours to call with strokes. Now those numbers have increased dramatically, right? We need to keep saying chest pain, call 911, right? We need to send the message out there that we're seeing less COVID in the hospital. It's safe to come to the emergency department. Absolutely. We've gotten smarter. And, and again, you know, we talked about this before, but the message for EMS as well as hospitals is going to be, is this infectious or is this not? Right. That's one of the first ABCs, you know, scene safety, body substance isolation. Is this infectious or is this not? And if the answer is yes, it's time to do like a level three PPE. And if the answer is no, then you can go about treating your normal business when we get past this COVID crisis. Because I still think we're at the point right now where that ankle sprain is still getting PPE. Right. And it's go it's, it, it won't be forever. Right. It's getting better. And when we pull the trigger to say we don't have to do this anymore, it's going to be a guess. It's going to be a guess on our part. And there's no right or wrong answer. Very fair points, Mark. Um, so tell us more about the MD1 program. How can people, I know you guys um, do tremendous work in New Jersey State, and it's one of the most robust fellowships in the country. Tell us more about the program. How can people donate to MD1 program? I know you guys do a fair bit of charitable work too with the EMS communities, and that's part of the process. So love to hear yeah, more thanks. about that. So it's, it's MD1, it's the number one program.org. They can go onto our website. So we are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week for on, on a ground uh, unit, a police interceptor with the full operating room and emergency department on wheels. Um, everything you can imagine from uh, chest tubes to Reboa to low titer whole blood um, to ultrasound machines in every vehicle. The vehicles are all now um, blood banks uh, sanctioned by the Department of Health and they're also labs. So sanctioned by the Department of Health as well for point of care testing. Um, um, we have an emergency number that any police fire EMS um, unit can obtain. If anybody's uh, listening who wants this number, they can certainly email me at markm uh, at, uh, mark at mg1program.org and we can give them the emergency number for a police fire EMS. And we are around. If we, we have relationships with multiple systems where they send us text pages with high acuity calls 
and we will make it if we can, particularly if someone is on scene for a long time. We'll get back to where we were before, which is anybody entrapped is perfect to call MD1 because having the ability to do these procedures on location improves patient survival, right? We have several studies which show that. We don't charge any patient hospital healthcare system. We survive purely on donations. So people donate to us. Uh, it's, we're a 501c3, a nonprofit. Everything gets donated. And we, and, and we are out there at all times with six vehicles to improve people's uh, lives. And we do this all kind of out of a, a labor of love because we believe in what we're doing because we are a group of doctors who are EMS physicians who come from the streets where we started all out being police officers, firefighters, uh, nurses, paramedics, EMTs, first responders, uh, fire, you know, in, in all aspects. So this is where we believe the future is. Beautiful. And I know, Mark, you and I both uh, believe in evidence-based medicine and EMS. Can you do a little bit about uh, plugging the Facebook Live that you guys do as well? Yeah. So we, um, it's, we used to do a journal club once a week. I mean, we still do it. We just don't do it in person anymore. Um, but we'll get back to that uh, shortly. And we, we get together as a group and we pull anywhere from two to ten articles every single week. And we say, how can we incorporate these articles into our practice? We do it on Facebook Live. We'll get up to 7,000 views uh, every single week. And we sit and we discuss this. Um, COVID has changed this a little bit because we all used to be in person. Um, and we can't do that. And um, I can't wait to get back in, in person anymore. So, so, uh, so we, we go through interesting cases that the doctors had uh, outside the hospital. And then we go ahead and we do the articles and we just sit and we review them and talk about how can this impact us um, tomorrow instead of waiting, you know, three to 10 years um, before the literature changes. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure. Faison, thank you so much. This was great. Absolutely. So this is Mark Merlin and Faison Arshad wishing everyone a safe tour. <laughs>